Hello, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Hack Chats. Today, my guest is Luke Richmond. Now, on paper, the man is an author and a professional adventurer. What does professional adventurer mean? Well, at the beginning of the episode, I start by listing some of the achievements that Luke has made over the course of his life, and they are extraordinary be it climbing mountains, crossing deserts, rowing across oceans. He's done the lot, but that doesn't really paint an accurate picture of the man that he is. The point of this episode was to try and go a little bit deeper than that, to talk about his experiences in the military, how after leaving the military, he fell into a life of addiction and the struggles of that and the mental strength it took to pull himself out of that and into a life of, firstly, a kind of fitness fanatic, <laughs> and from that into the professional adventurer that I met. In a lot of podcasts of this type, they'll focus on the successes of somebody's career. And I can only really get that interested about that depth of conversation. So what we were looking at was more the struggles that he's battled with and the failures that he's faced along the way um, with regards to pulling out of trips or finding himself upside down under a rowing boat in the middle of the ocean. Luke has one of those personalities that's incredibly infectious. He is a big energy guy. And not only is he from Tasmania, which obviously means that I love him immediately, but he has a very giving nature. He's a good storyteller, and he's someone who appears to go about life in a way that he wants to help, and he wants to share, and he wants to do whatever he can to make the world a better place, which is exactly what I'm looking for for guests for this podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Here it is, my episode with Luke Richmond. Luke is a professional adventurer and author who lives in Tasmania, Australia. He's climbed the highest mountain on six continents, survived minus 60 degree temperatures in Antarctica, been held captive in the jungles of West Papua, and paddled Australia's longest river. He's witnessed death before his eyes on the highest peaks and healed his mind with a 55-day ocean row across the Atlantic, setting a new world record. Luke, with his wife Elise, dragged carts containing all of their food and water across 1,800 kilometres of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. He's found comfort in suffering while on, on adventures and his hard-earned lessons are shared in his two best-selling books, which are called Vodka and Sandstorms and One Life, One Chance. Luke, welcome to Hack Chats. I, I want to say what's wrong with you because that is a crazy list, but I'll be more tactful. <laughs> yeah. I'll be more tactful. I'll say, why, why do you think you're wired the way that you are? Well, um, mate, first, thanks for having me on. Uh, <laughs> you could probably blame my parents. I was raised in the outback, so in the deserts of sort of central Queensland and the Northern Territory. So it's a bit of a different upbringing out there. You, you grow up, you know, hunting, fishing, shooting, driving trucks at a very, very young age. So I think that just opened up the, the boundless frontier of what was out there. Um, but my parents were also pretty cluey, so they knew I couldn't get a proper education out there. So they did give me the city education. So I had this sort of very adventurous upbringing, a city education, and then I guess you can blame the military for everything else. I come, I come out of there with a unique skill set and a desire for high risk, and it led me in a certain way. For sure. <laughs> so, so you joined the military at 17, right? 17, yeah, with mum and dad's permission, because when you're that young, you need the Guardian to sign off on it. Christ. Okay. Now, I imagine 
that a life of, you know, as a professional adventurer would be maybe a, a natural progression from the army? I'm, I'm assuming, mm. given that you must learn a lot about discipline, you must learn a lot about physical, mental challenges, obviously a lot of adrenaline. Um, yeah. Did you leave the army thinking, Christ, what do I do next? You know, what was, how did it evolve? Yeah, that transition's always a tough one for, you know, for different soldiers for different reasons. Mm. I didn't leave the military thinking I'm going to get into big adventures. Like I'd done enough walking with packs up hills for last me a lifetime. I said, never again will I throw a pack on. Um, so I got out of the army and just took off overseas, you know, just to explore and travel and get some of that freedom back that I hadn't had, you know, for the last mm -hmm. four or five years. And I guess my transition was a little bit tumultuous. I ended up you know, in a heavy sort of drinking scenario, heavy drug use, becoming a drug addict for you know a number of years, wow. um, and then went after the big turnaround and got getting myself clean. I had a unique skill set that wasn't really fitting into civilian life anywhere, mm -hmm. and also had I guess an extreme personality from that military experience where, you know, you are in high risk situations, you're getting rewarded for aggression, you're, you're loving the sort of the spice of life, that adrenaline, you know, mm -hmm. and the the tip of the spear type stuff. So I had to find something that, that suited that. And that's when I started to venture into to big adventures because they just, they calmed me down as opposed to winding me up. And um, you, know, you could get everything I needed, that high logistical challenge, the adrenaline, the physical mental battle, and, and the risk, the life or death risk that, that we were used to. Gosh, it's, I, you know, it's funny that that story that you just described is sadly not uncommon. Mm. Leaving the army, drinks and drugs yep. and then there seems to be a moment where you can go one of two paths you know or you'll focus yourself and you throw yourself into adventure or people will go find a job that they fit or it's it's the other one you know the one which just continues yeah. down that darker path and it's, it's a small change like the, the only reason i got out of it was one phone call you know i was um, i was actually in your in your home home country in, yeah. in london in the uk when it was all starting to go real pear-shaped so that's when i was you know heavily into the drug use woke up in jail um yeah, I was getting hosed down by the police because you just, you know, I was covered in my own filth. You know, you're a real piece of shit human yeah. in my eyes at that stage. Um, and there was a lot of shame associated to that. So that wasn't the bloke I wanted to be. Um, or I wasn't, that wasn't the bloke my parents had raised or the army had produced. So it was sort of a big rock bottom cliche scenario, I guess. But I went home the next day after getting released and, you know, kept taking drugs. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I was twisted. But I phoned a buddy that day, my mate, old army buddy named Liam, and he told me to go to this place in Thailand called Tiger Muay Thai. Um, just, he was a mixed martial artist. He said, go there, clean yourself up, you know, sort yourself out. So I booked my flights then and there, high as a kite, um, finished all my drugs in the taxi on the way to Heathrow and flew out. But um, those next two months of going cold turkey and, and getting into the Muay Thai fight stuff, just hard training was the turnaround, but it was that phone call. If that phone call didn't happen, you know, I probably would end up in jail like a couple of my mates or dead like a couple of others, you know. Fascinating. Mm. God, what a, good, what a good friend. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got, you're a man of many talents, okay? So a professional adventurer doesn't really paint the picture of what you do. You're a mountaineer, a rock climber, a rower, a base jumper, and I know that that retired, is... retired now. Yeah, you... <laughs> dad, full-time dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I know those are just a, a few of the things that you've done. Was there any one in particular that you preferred or that you found, you know, came more naturally to you? Mountaineering for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that um, that was the beginning. That was some of the first big adventures I went into with, with climbing some big mountains. Um, it fit quite well because I was used to carrying load and doing patrols with the army. So it fit pretty good. And um, 
you know, that your fire and dopamine hit when you do bag a summit, like that's sort of unforgettable stuff. And it's something I keep going back to, even though I'm getting sidetracked doing ocean rows and the deserts and base and, and everything else life's throwing at us. Every season or two, we're back in the mountains because it's just like a, it's just a happy place. You know, I really enjoy it. It's simple. You know, Mother Nature can be quite brutal, but it's simple and it's semi-predictable, you know, as opposed to normal society where I do struggle a little bit. It's very unpredictable. People are brutal, unpredictable creatures. So in harsh nature, I find, find comfort. So I keep going back to the mountains over and over again. And this idea of sort of chasing a simple life, I think I've, I've heard you speak about in the past where you had, you know, you built up a career and you had this money and you had some cars and you had mm. what we're all meant to want to want. Um, yeah. And then you had a day when you thought, screw this, this isn't for us, let's sell it all and start committing to ourselves full time. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about that day. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's where I thought, you know, time to be a proper adult, you know, get involved in society, be a, be a businessman. So mm -hmm. I started a couple of gyms in Sydney. One went really well and the second one was more CrossFit specific type gym and they're going great. Um, getting to a point where, you know, in my small world, I'd made it. I'd made good money. You start thinking about boats and nice cars and you're getting into that side of life. But then I met my now wife, Elise, um, who we just, you know, just really clicked right, right from the beginning. And she could see that I was starting to get more and more unhappy through, you know, the course of the second year of the second business, even though, you know, in monetary terms, we're doing quite well. Mm -hmm. So we should be very happy, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I come to a point where I said, well, I'm just not, I'm not loving this. I'm, I'm actually quite un unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, and she said to me, well, when were you last happy? I said, oh, probably just training in Thailand every day, eating good food, living simple and going on adventures. And, and she turned around and said, righto, let's go. So within four months of that conversation, we'd sold the cars, all the furniture, handed the business over to the partners and just walked away. And that was 2013 into 2014, moved back to Thailand, started training and refocused on a life of adventure. We need to talk about Elise. So <laughs> I'm in the midst of planning a wedding. Yes. And it's, it's going to be unique in that there's only going to be four of us there. It's happening on Christmas Day. Yep. It does not even touch the sides <laughs> of how unique your wedding was. Please tell us about it because it sounds like Elise is, is similar to you. Yeah. And my will-be wife would not do what she did. Elise is a weapon. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she's very fit, very strong-minded. She's just a legend of a person. So when I'd proposed to her after finishing my first ocean row, uh, fortunately, she said yes, and we carried on yeah, to plan this life of adventure together. We were actually on a um, skydiving base jumping trip of America at the time, and a buddy of mine said, oh, you know you can get married in balloons over Vegas. And I go, oh, that's, that's really cool. That'd be something a bit different. Um, and then he goes, and you know what? We can, we can possibly jump them. I'll see if we can get the guy to bend the rules a bit and see if we can jump out of this balloon. And we managed to pull it all together. You know, the very lax laws of Nevada allowed us to do this where we could uh, go up in the, the little chapel balloon above the desert outside of Vegas. We had an Elvis lookalike guy as the priest. He married us, my army buddy Jimmy filmed it. Um, and he was like my best man, I guess. And then we all, Jimmy, myself and Elise, exited the basket. So we took the plunge, 5,000 feet jump, landed at a little patch of grass next to a casino and, and partied all day. So that was the, that was the wedding. It I'm was amazing. I'm so glad that that's on camera. <laughs> Anyone that wants to watch that, you can find it easily online and it is brilliant. It's the best wedding video you'll ever see. It's so cool. And it really made me chuckle because I was thinking, what's, because we were meant to get married in the middle of the MCG during the cricket. 
Oh, yeah. In front of 100,000 people. Liz doesn't like cricket. She'll be pregnant. Was <laughs> nervous about being in front of 100 people. I was thinking, is there one thing she would like to do less than get going to the cricket? I thought maybe base jumping. <laughs> maybe <laughs> jump out of, a, out of a hot air balloon. It's full commitment. Full commitment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, jump or not. Exactly. Now, I'm not, I think a lot is written about successful adventurers and new discoveries and world records being beaten, all of which you've done. But... It's my belief that I can find out a lot more about a person through their failed attempts of summiting or, or mm. their failed, effectively, their, their failures rather than their accomplishments. Yep. So I want to talk about some of the missions that you've been forced to, to abort, to pull out of. Now, I know yep. there was a, ro a row across the Tasman Sea. I'll get all these pronunciations wrong. Climbing Mount Ibrus in Russia. Yep. Mount Satanpath in India. Yep. So, so tell me, what does it take to pull the plug on a trip? you know, that you've obviously been training for and raising money for and, and all, all the work that goes into them. Yeah, it's, it's a critical decision and it's, um, it's, it's a must do, yeah, at all times. Well, not at all times, but it's a must, uh, I guess, skill to be able to do that. But in the beginning, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, fresh out of the army, recovered addict. It was all about ego and records and proving to the world I'm like this piece of crap and mm -hmm. yeah, proving to myself that I could do this stuff. So pulling back and turning around was, was just a, not going to happen. You know, it was never going to happen. And that's a very dangerous scenario to put yourself in. So when the decision on Elbrus came to turn around, that was a huge hit, mm. you know, to, to everything I was trying to, trying to achieve. But over the years, you know, I guess with the, the death of my ego, or the slow death of my ego, um, me learning patience and, and everything else that comes along with this adventure life, turning around... It's just another decision now. You know, most recent, I call it, call it a failure, was on Amadablam, a big mountain over in Nepal, um, just pre-COVID. It was Elisa's first big mountain. Um, had a cameraman along, doing all the, the documentary stuff, um, big sponsors, you know, so there's all this financial pressure, pressure to get the shots, you know, a lot going on, but it's a very dangerous peak. Very technical, very steep, um, very sustained, you know, 20 or so pitches to get to the, the summit. And we get to a point where we're probably only a couple of hours from the top, and um, Elise was exhausted, and my Sherpa Mingma, you know, said, you know, Elise should go down, which mm -hmm. I agreed with. But our cameraman Yok, he also had frostbite in his fingers. He just let himself get a bit lax while he's doing some filming, so he had that. And we only had one other Sherpa in support. So Mingma wanted me to clip in with him and crack onto the summit and then come back, but that would have left Kami, our other Sherpa, taking Elise mm -hmm. and Yok down by himself. And that whole risk evaluation just didn't stack up in, in the few seconds that you evaluate, you know. So we abort the attempt, we all turn around together and everyone gets back down those 20 pitches safely. And that had very little effect on me as the first turnaround did. So I think that's you know, a big progression of my own emotional you know, landscape when it comes to adventures. But then when it came to the sponsor side of things, they were actually happy that that had happened because you could deliver this story, this unique story of failure, learning, and everything else. And they got more out of that than if I'd just cracked on, bagged another summit, held the flag out and come back down. You know, they're two totally different stories. And one is relatable and one isn't. You know, in life, the hills and valleys of life, we have more failures than we do successes. So there was more lessons and, and I guess when it comes to a financial point of view, return on investment out of that failure than the success. When you're on the flight home from that trip, is it with a feeling of disappointment that you didn't summit? Or is it a feeling of relief that you're here to live another day? You know, you can come back and do this another year if you, if you still feel like you have to. 
on the surface, I tell myself that, that it's, it's, <laughs> it's totally fine. You know, we're coming back. Mountains will always be there. But yeah, it was very tough. That, that one especially because I'd had my eye on that mountain for about 14 years. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a, a deep, deep um, disappointment. But it was balanced out because, I, because it was made for a lease. Mm-hmm. So it was made you know, I guess more out of love than of, out of, you know, anything else. Mm-hmm. So if anything happened to her, oh, that's just the greatest tragedy ever, you mm-hmm. know, let alone, you know, wouldn't worry about myself, but her especially. So getting her down, that was just a, a non-issue. So I think that helped counterbalance the disappointment. And I guess on the flip side of that, when you do summit and you do, you know, cross, a, cross an ocean, um, how long does that feeling of achievement last? Or is it short-lived? Oh, the mate, champagne. That, it's like, what next, what next? That's yeah. lifetime stuff. You know, yeah. obviously that huge dopamine spike and, and that reward system is instant and that might last only a week mm-hmm. before you're back to planning the next one. But the actual story and the lessons and that achievement, that's lifetime stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I still talk about my first ever expeditions, you know, almost weekly and selling books and telling these stories. Like that can, that can echo for a lifetime, that stuff. Awesome. God, that's good to hear. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, I've, any kind of endurance training that I've done, it's nowhere near what you've done. I've found that the physical side of the training can become dull. It can become repetitive. You eat the right things, train in a specific way. So, you, you know, in peak condition come day one of whatever yep. it is you're doing. Um, and I'm sure that you've mastered that. It's probably, probably less dull for you. But I, what I really want to talk about is how you train the mental side of things. You know, you know you're going to be in positions like you are. Do I summit or do I go home with my wife? Yep. Or, you know... I've heard you talk about when you capsize in the middle of the ocean and you're holding on. How do you prepare yourself mentally for, for the fear involved in a lot of these challenges? Yeah, there's a lot of books out there on this type of stuff, you know, resilience and, and, and that type of, you know, hot, what do you call it, clickbait type stuff, you mm-hmm. know. But for me, it has all come down to experience and not just experience of big adventures. It comes from, you know, starting to drip feed that resilience bank from when you do your first ever camping trip and it pours rain and and you're all miserable and you go home, you know, that's a valuable experience. And then you might do it and something else happens. You have a miserable trip. Well, that's another great experience. Yeah. It's very hard to go from a a very safe, comfortable life in the suburbs, throw yourself into Armadabam and expect to make the right decision. It's just not going to happen. You have to habituate to that misery a little bit so that when critical you know, stuff happens, you can make the right decision. Mm-hmm. So for me, I guess it was drip fed by my mum and dad in the outback first, and then into the military machine, all the training you've done since, and all the expeditions since, but even every workout, when you get to that point, especially when we're in that CrossFit world, we used to be in smashing ourselves to pieces, where there's that turnaround point, you go, oh, I might just back off a bit here, or no, I could probably push for another, mm-hmm. another minute or so. That's drip fed into your resilience bank. So when you're on that mountain and your head's down and the wind's pounding and it's minus 30, you're like, oh, stuff this, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. You might just take another 10 steps, another 20 steps, you know. And that's all I can say to people that ever want to, you know, they ask about resilience and <clears throat> toughness and all that stuff is, guys, just start. Just do something. Even if it's just a walk in the rain on a shitty day or it's just going camping, your first trek mm-hmm. for a day, then a multi-day trek, whatever it is, start building up that tolerance. Mm-hmm. We should talk about Kenware. So oh, for sure. he is, I guess, a hero of both of ours now. I've, I've, I've interviewed so many people that have gone to him at different stages in their life, be it injury recovery or chronic pain or brain tumor recovery, whatever it might be. You are Mr. Adventure. You're Mr. Fit. What, yeah. what brought you to him? 
Ken Ware, the legend. Uh, I originally met Ken out at Emerald. He had a gym out there when he started doing his neurophysics therapy full on. And I was in the mines out there, um, back underground, doing crazy long war moves, terrible work, um, high paying work that to pay for these adventures. So that's when I first met Ken. But for anyone that can understand the neurophysics therapy, um, I didn't understand it at all back in those days. I was very much driven by the status quo of training and, and fitness at that time. So I was training my own way and Ken had this whole other philosophy that he never pushed on anybody. It was just, you know, come and try it or, or whatever. And so flash forward 10 years when I start breaking down and I have got pain and injuries and lots of anxiety and all this stuff going on, lots of, say, I guess, post-military stuff I hadn't dealt with as well, I, I find Ken again and he, and he finally gets me into or I finally commit to his programs. And that's when I see a rapid transition in myself in terms of my mental health, my performance, you know, pain-free, strength, everything now. And so after those encounters with Ken doing his programs, I, and, and Elise as well, started studying under Ken for a couple of years. So we became um, neurotricians, probably the most challenging course I've ever done in my life, all right? And I've done a lot of courses in the army. Um, and now we do this stuff full on. So with his programs, I can now come back off an expedition after dropping 15 kilos, I'm full of tendonitis, pain, all the rest of it. And within you know, two to three months maximum, I'm back to full strength, pain-free, tendonitis-free, ready to rock and roll again. And that's just testament to his, you know, 30 years of, of everything he's done with neurophysics therapy. Let's design it. What are you doing differently? What, what would you do pre-Ken when you come back from these sort of trips? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's chalk and cheese, as my mum would say. Um, yeah. part, before meeting Ken, I'd come back off an expedition. I'd probably go straight to the CrossFit gym, start caning myself. Yeah, maybe trying to do a bit of rehab on certain injuries or whatever, but it was very much a double down, harder, stronger, faster philosophy. And that would get me back to being ready, but it was probably going to get me back in six months, nine months, without really dealing with the underlying conditions of what was happening to me, right? These days, I'll come back and I'm back to empty bars, zero weight on all the fixed machines, moving very, very slowly, like a millimeter at a time, like 10 second rep type stuff eyes closed and looking for certain cues. So I'm looking for these fight or flight responses of every little movement that I'm doing. So if I see them, my traps jack up, if my face starts to grimace or my knees start buckling in, well, these are signs of a sympathetic nervous system response, that fight or flight response. And we don't want that. We want to always be calm and composed to allow the nervous system to do what it does best, rest, digest, recover, and all the rest of it. If I'm having these fight or flight responses, well, it's not going to heal me. It's not going to get rid of my pain and everything else. So now with these super slow programs in the beginning that in the middle transition into normal paced programs, just like you'd see in any other gym, except you'll see me with my eyes closed, moving in a seamless way, not huffing and puffing, not sweating, you know, all that. But then within two, three months, I'm back to shifting full stacks, you know, hundreds of kilos on this, that, and the other, but in a calm and composed way, not huffing and puffing. Mm. And the body is in what Ken calls a state of growth absolute state of growth where you can slot yourself now into any environment of high stress difficult environmental challenges and be able to adapt instantly astonishing yeah. how have you found teaching that your own institute now rather than being being the student yeah it's uh it's they're difficult concepts to get across to people only because of the amount of weight of misinformation out there in the fitness industry so you're battling against this juggernaut of marketing and misinformation that doesn't have health in mind 
So when you take people back to this stuff and you're trying to explain it, it can be quite challenging. But you can normally use enough analogies to get people to understand the concepts. And once they begin and commit to the first two programs, you've got them for life because the results are just so good. Yeah, we've had clients that even just had basic pain, like a lower back pain or a knee pain for 10 years, gone in four days. Yeah, some ladies haven't slept properly in years and years and years, you know, because of anxiety, gone after the first week. So these are just tiny changes in the system that have massive changes to their quality of life. And so once, they're, once they've gotten to that level, we've, they've got them for life. It's so crazy people don't know about this. Since meeting Ken, I've been telling stories like that. You know, four days later, this happened. Five days later, they walked. Yeah. And it's astonishing this isn't... How does not everyone know about this? I'm screaming oh, about it, but I've only met so many people, you know? You're battling a tidal wave, not just of the, the whole health and, and sickness industry, but then all of the mystical elements of health as well. You know, people go and get touched and have their penile glands reset and have pain sprays and all this stuff. All these rubbish things you have to battle against. So when something comes along or has been, on, been along for now for 30 years with Ken and you tell them these concepts, they go, oh, that sounds like this or X and oh, that's, you know, whatever. So yeah, that's all good, no worries. Come and try it one day. And, you know, if their pain gets bad enough, they typically do. Yeah. But yeah, it's a tough one, mate. It's a huge multi-billion dollar industry is, you know, the sickness industry. Yeah. So the thing with these programs is once we've given these clients the tools, so we've taught them these tools, they don't even, have, they don't need us. They can take that package anywhere into any gym and, and train the way they want and control their health outcomes. So they take ownership over their own health. And that's unique to neurophysics therapy. Everything else in the health and fitness industry, the PT controls it, the chiro controls it. You know, you don't have ownership over your own health. And that control is where that stability for life comes from. Now, I've heard you speak about wanting to make adventuring accessible for everyone. That was one of your, one of your goals. And I think... Looking at you, I'll, I think a lot of people go, mm, I might be able to, I could climb a mountain, or I could do a marathon, or I guess I could maybe, maybe cross something, not, not a desert, but something carrying something. Oceans, hell no. <laughs> I am not getting in a tiny boat and rowing across an ocean. Uh, tell us about some of your experience on the oceans. I tell you what, even over the last well, 14, 15 years of big trips, even the military stuff, ocean rowing is by far the most suffering you can endure. Yeah. Uh, it has that unique combination of mother nature at its worst with the ocean, so you're very exposed. Sleep deprivation, because typically on these trips you're rowing for two hours, resting for two hours, 24 hours a day, trying to keep the boat moving. Uh, calorie deficits, you know, and then the 12 hours of rowing, friction on your backside, you name it. Everything is designed to just break you down to nothing. So the, the misery is next level. So I wouldn't suggest an ocean row for anyone getting off the couch. You might need to start with a kayak or something, but... Uh, it's a different type of sport and it wasn't even on my radar. So I was just living and training in Thailand and I get a call from a mate who was on the piss in Portugal and he met this rowing team that were going to row across the Atlantic. And one of them had got appendicitis and had to fly home. So they were going to cancel their trip. And my mate, after hearing their story, said, hold on, I know a mate who's into <laughs> adventures. So I get this call from the team saying, can you come? We're leaving in two weeks. So I quit my job the next day, asked Elise if I can go. Yeah, she said, yep, go for it and uh, flew over and then I've started to find out about this sport of ocean rowing and it's been around for a very long time um, especially in your neck of the woods like yeah. the, the UK is where these boats are made it's where it was sort of pioneered and when they told me you know you have to row for two hours on two hours off 24 hours a day go, oh yeah that sounds sounds doable I was super fit at that stage mm -hmm. doing a lot of crossfit comps you know I had a lot of adventures under my belt 
sat on an erg for probably an hour and 15 in the gym. I go, yeah, this is, this is, this is fine. It's a bit boring, but it'll be right. Uh, but yeah, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal, mate. Four days of violent seasickness um, where you still have to row anyway, you know, mm. so you're just retching into a bucket, rowing. The waves, these, this just chaotic system that the ocean is, you know, it can go from flat calm to 24 breakers, mm. you know, in, in, in minutes. So all that's just you know, scary as hell to a bloke brought up in the outback in the desert. Yeah. Um, and I think it was only the first week. I had my head in a bucket just saying, no, nah, this can't be done. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time I've ever uttered those words, you know. Um, but we ended up punching on. You had to come up with some very uh, psychological ways to deal with that trauma, you know. And um, that's where you know, Ken helped me a lot with the whole gratefulness thing because gratefulness is such a powerful emotion. And, you know, on the roof of the cab, I ended up writing a few different slogans. And the biggest one was, you know, be grateful. You deserve this. Thank you for allowing me to suffer. Mm-hmm. And so I just started to play these little games in my mind where you started to realize it was a privilege to be out there. You know, these guys have put together this trip for hundreds of thousands of dollars. You got a free passage. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just a workhorse to come along. But then you had a skill set, you know, and the unique ability to actually get it done, you know, which is a privilege in itself. Um, and there could have been thousands of people out there to trade their lives for mine in a second to be out there in this miserable, you know, boat. Uh, and when you did that, it didn't make it all go away. It was still horrendous, but it just turned it back from 11 a little bit. It just made it doable. So every 90 minutes after you wake up, you can get back out there and row. So being grateful for that suffering and knowing that I deserved it was, was good for me. Was the payoff more than doing any other trip because of the pain? Oh, I tell you what, I said I'd never do one ever again <laughs> after hitting the sand. Recovery took a while because I wasn't into Ken's philosophy and programs fully by that stage. Mm. So that recovery took about a year. Um, I'd lost a ton of weight, your backside. So any, any muscle that's not being used in rowing just disappears. So your mm. quads go, your whole backside turns into a flapper skin that's covered in these salt sores and boils and it's just horrendous, right? So you had a pretty miserable get off onto the beach and yeah it takes about two three weeks to adapt to land again because mm. you spent so much time in the water i couldn't walk properly um but elise married me i pro- proposed to her the next day and, and she married me so i must have looked all right no it's the <laughs> worst you've ever looked she went oh this is so, mate, as bad as it gets it's, it's only going to get better from here i promise <laughs> exactly. when i'm 90 i'll look better than i look here <laughs> but you know and flash forward a couple of years i ended up doing another one so i guess the pain fades away the glory stays and you forget but um yeah i'll never do another one <laughs> Okay, <laughs> today is the 30th of November, 2021. Yeah. He said he's never doing another one. We'll touch base in a year. We'll see if you stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a kayak next time. We'll see. And how, how has become, you know, you said you've, you've retired from most of these things. But yeah, how has, how has becoming a parent affected some of the choices you've made or some of the things oh, you've Oh, I'm not, I'm not. No, no, I'm not a parent. I thought you were a parent. No, no, no. So I'm you're staying with a friend with a crime baby. I'm visiting, yes. Now, this is, a, this is a good topic to get into, actually, because okay. Elise and I have talked about this a number of times because we get asked all the time you know when you're having kids and you know i guess we have a unique lifestyle at the moment i get to or we get to travel around the world doing any crazy adventure we come up with you know often on the back of companies sponsoring us and going through that whole cycle and i guess it's a lot to change that lifestyle it's taken Mm. a long time to get here so we weigh it up very honestly it's like babe, would you be happy if I take off for three months and do an expedition and leave you at home with a baby? And she goes, oh, hell no, that'd just be miserable. I want to be with you. And so we have these conversations and we always come, to ba- come back to, no, we don't, we don't want to. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I have a sister who's a breeding machine. She's had a few. I've got mates that have got kids all over the place. So now we're in this situation where, okay, we've got 
a couple of extra dollars. Why don't we just help their kids? Mm-hmm. You know, so let's pay for their sport. Let's take them on adventures and do our bit to, you know, the human race, however you want to name Amazing. it. But, you know, we're not, not there yet. Yours is coming. Yours is coming. You can look, you can look after my kids. You can yeah. have my kids' education. <laughs> I'll take it. First adventure on <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> oh, fine. Nothing in a boat. <laughs> um, what, are you, what, are you, what have you got planned next? What's the next challenge? What are we looking for? Oh, next? mate, the list is massive. Um, it gets bigger and bigger every year. Mm-hmm. Some quirky, stupid little things, others massive. So the big dream is a cross-continental crossing of Antarctica. Um, Elise and I, two sleds, kite skis, going from Novo, like the, the South African side, all the way across Antarctica to the other side. So that's the dream, hopefully for my 40th, which will mm-hmm. be in a couple of years' time, yeah. pending the world, of course. So for that one, we'll head to Canada at the end of next year and do some polar training over there and see how that one goes. Ideally, we're off to Nepal, April, May next year to climb a few peaks just to get our mm-hmm. mountain legs back under us and get that, that beautiful feeling again. There's, yeah, crazy ideas. I've got this half-built custom rowboat again, but different. We're not going out <laughs> in the ocean, okay? It's a, a coastal row we're going to do from Townsville up the coast to Thursday Island and then across to Weeper. So sort of do 90 days around Cape York, just fishing, crabbing. Right. A little bit of rowing every day, having fun on that. So that'll be June, July, August next year. Mate, I've got some crazy ideas, but most of them I'll have to keep to myself for now. Yeah. But uh, those are the few big ones coming up. But as you, and this is something I say to everyone as well, don't come up with a list of stuff to do and try and plan it for five years. If you mm. want to do something, just pull the trigger on it. You know, say, right, end of this year or in three months, we're doing it. Because otherwise what tends to happen is that those few things will stay on your list for 20 years. Mm. Whereas once you start to bump them off, oh, we did that beautiful trek in Tasmania. Now we can do this one. Or now we can go to the States and do that. You start bumping them off, your list gets bigger and bigger. And it's the same with me. Everything you tick off, on every trip, I'm thinking up two or three other things that mm. I'd love to do and explore. And you're meeting new people and, and expanding your horizons that way. So anyone that's planning something, don't muck around and plan it for five years. Do it now. I heard you say that in a podcast. You said, let's... You and Elise, let's imagine we die in five years. Mm-hmm. We are 100%. Five years from today, we're dead. Yep. How do we spend this time? You know, yeah, I mate. guess that is exactly what you're mate, That's what a question here. I've been asking myself every year or every probably six months um, after Aconcagua. So one of my first big mountaineering trips, there was a lot of deaths on, on that expedition. Mm-hmm. So some, a whole Spanish team got wiped out going for the summit, you know. And then when we were pushing for our summit attempt a few days later, I come across one of these guys frozen dead on the side of the trail wrapped in a silver blanket. And that was the first time I'd really started to confront death. You know, I'd seen dead bad guys before and you all, you all lose loved ones, but you don't, it doesn't hit you. It's not, it's not personal. But when I saw this guy with his boots on and everything else, like that was me. That was mm-hmm. me climbing a mountain and now you're dead. And so from that moment, I started to really confront death. And that's where that question came from. And originally it was, you know, what if you died in a year? But that was just, it was too short a time frame. You start thinking about base desires and, you know, just that dopamine hit the next mm-hmm. rush type thing. Then it was like, okay, 10 years or 15, but that's too long. You get, you get sidetracked by mortgages and careers and business and you start planning too much and it all just goes pear-shaped. Five years was the sweet spot. What if you die in five years' time? But you have to really believe it when you ask yourself that question. Like you have to really believe that that's going to happen. And then you grab a pen and you write down these things you'd want to do before your death. And whatever comes out, that doesn't mean you've got to you know, run off and live in the bush and, and change your whole lifestyle. It just means you've got to splice that stuff into your current life right now because that's the 
real value and meaning that's going to make your life incredible. And it's just a real sorry fact that we get to you know, 50 when we start to get cancers and heart disease and diabetes and everything else before we even think about this question. And then often it's too late. And that's become the motto, well, the name of your book and audio book yeah. um, and your adventure company is this Olock, which is one life, one chance, right? That's, that's it. Yep. That's the life motto. That's the whole philosophy, mate. That's the whole awesome. philosophy. And is every challenge from now on with Elise? Are they all minimum two-man teams? Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't believe how lucky I have been. Not just to find a yeah, beautiful girlfriend in the beginning, a fantastic wife, but now an adventure partner, which is mm. the hardest thing to find, is someone that can you know, stay with you step by step, can contribute to the team, is a valuable member of all team um, teams, and... And it just works, you know, and the lessons we learn on big adventures, we carry into our marriage and it just makes it stronger and better every year. So, yeah, she is coming along on everything. She doesn't like bass, so she's not into bass jumping, which That's is fair. great. <laughs> and it must have been tough on her for those few years while I was smashing it with my buddies. Yeah. Um, she's not into ocean rowing, which is good a good thing. It. Yep, that'll just make her miserable. <laughs> um, but she's into everything else. Loves the mountains, deserts, all the hikes. Yeah, she's into it, so... That's my adventure partner for life. Phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much, so much to pour over. Actually, actually, I do want to finish just by saying that I spent a long time sitting with this idea. Professional adventurer, what does that mean? Mm. And I thought... It means you're always poor. Well, yeah. Well, initially <laughs> I thought, okay, this has been that you're fit all the time. That's spending your life being fit so you can do these challenges. And I just thought, that must only be a tiny bit of the job. You've got to become a salesman. You've got to be able to become a public speaker that can pitch to sponsors. Yeah. You know, you've got to be a business planner. You've got to create this whole diary for yourself. Yeah. You know, what, a, what a vast job, you know. Yeah, eventually. yeah. What, the, is, what are you doing? Do you have any day that's the same as, as any other? You know, what's your sort of daily routine look like? I tell you what, we only have those days in between adventures sometimes. But even then down in Tassie, there's so much to do, so we're always running around. But mate, that transition's been hard. You know, I wasn't a, I definitely wasn't a public speaker. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the type of guy that could, you know, have have charisma in a corporate setting because I'd never seen that before. Mm -hmm. So all of those skills, they have just grown over time. Um, I was lucky. I met some really good businessmen while I was in Sydney with the gyms, and they taught me a hell of a lot about the corporate world. And it was nothing like I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's not suits and white paper in boardrooms. It's beers and coffee shops and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But that gave me the confidence to tell my stories to that type of client and figure out the whole business structure behind why the hell would we give this guy $20,000? What are we going to get out of it as a company? So then he could structure up that return on investment. So that was, that was a challenge. The speaking stuff, I guess, came when my first book came out and the publishers are saying, look, we'd like you to go to all these bookshops and and maybe you know, tell your story and sign some copies because once the copies are signed in the stores, they can't send them back, so you're guaranteed a sale. Oh, nice. I was like, oh, this is great because I'm broke as hell right now. Yeah. Um, so I hit the road with a rolly bag full of books and I thought I'd make an adventure out of it. I decided I was going to hitchhike around Australia. So it ended up being all of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, hitchhiking with a big bag of books, no money, and I had to sell a book, of, book a day to survive. So that was my goal. Cool. And uh, I ended up selling out a few few bagfuls and, and getting reprints. And, and along the way, I would offer my talk, which wasn't even structured. I was just going to just you know, ramble on to anyone that wanted me to drop by, whether it was a barbecue, anything. And my first ever speaking gig was to three PTs in a gym in Melbourne. They said, oh, come, we've got an hour off. Come and tell your story. And, and that's where it started. But at the end of that hitchhiking adventure, 
I'd done probably 32 different talks mm. and it started to evolve out of that. You see, oh, they laughed at that point, so mm. that's cool. Oh, they didn't, that had a big impact when I got a, you know, into the emotional stuff. Then in the beginning, I was all about, oh, I'm this big, tough, smashing mountains type story. But then I was like, no, no, actually, yeah, I was a drug addict before and mm-hmm. you know, then this happened and all this stuff. So, and that had an impact that was valuable to these people. So it evolved further and further. Then you can add some pictures and video and get a bit more structured in your delivery. I've never become the corporate keynote, you mm-hmm. know, leadership and, you know, all that type of stuff. I'm more about delivering my story raw, honest, you know, real. And these are the lessons I've learned. And these lessons can help you in life through, you know, this process. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my whole thing. And ideally to get everyone thinking about their own mortality, planning their own adventures and getting amongst it. But uh, you made the career adventure, it's, I'd say, 30% big adventures mm-hmm. and the rest of the time you're telling the stories, sharing the lessons, hunting for the next sponsorship and planning the next one. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for telling us your story. It's been awesome to have you here. Mate, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got out of it as much as I did. He really is a fascinating and uh, an exciting guy to sit down with. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, I wanted to do it for a while. I'd read about read up about him and his life, and uh, it was it was great to finally get the chance to sit down with him. So, thank you so much for tuning in. This is in all likelihood probably the last episode before Christmas. So if it is, then a huge happy Christmas from me, and thank you for tuning in over the course of the year. It's been a really fun year of conducting these interviews from Sydney, the Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast, and I feel like I've really learned a lot out of the guests I've managed to, to interview. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do come back next year, tell your friends, and we will pick things up early January if I find more interesting people to interview, which is the hope. So thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon.